This is Wabi Sabi Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Yasmin. If you are a new listener, welcome. Thanks for being here. Remember that you can access all episodes through Substack, aka the newsletter, as well as anywhere you normally stream podcasts. And if you are a returning listener and a subscriber, thank you so much again for being here. If there are any requests that you have for guests, conversations, topics, or subscriber-only content, I've been generally on the fence about these things, uh, but I'm very much open to feedback, and that it be an engaged process. So if you haven't already, um, please subscribe to the program and leave a review wherever you normally enjoy podcasts or, or leave a comment or feedback within Substack or on Instagram at Adam Yasmin. It means a lot and it's a great way to um, share information about the program. I'm really excited about today's conversation. My guest is Daniel Shirell. He is an author and climate organizer who helped pass green legislation in New York State. His book is called Warmth, Coming of Age at the End of Our World. I'm in the middle of it right now, and it is a beautiful, introspective book about the problem, aka climate change, his experiences as a climate organizer, and also woven in letters to his unborn child as he's been pondering parenthood with his partner. I'll leave it at that, and without further ado... Here's my conversation with Daniel Shirell. Well, Daniel, it is an honor to have you on the program. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. So we just sat down. Uh, I'm on the West Coast, you're on the East Coast. We're both drinking tea, and that's Camellia sinensis, as opposed to an herb or a tisane. And um, I'm curious just how you're doing on this particular day of the week, given that it's, you know, the end of the week and there may be some kind of a, hopefully some kind of a closure to the week that just preceded us. So yeah, just in general, how are you doing? Hmm. You know, today is one of those days where um, my day job as a climate organizer just feels very tiring. It's very tiring. Not in a horrible way, but um, uh, I work, I'm the campaign director for this organization that works with labor unions around the country to help them run campaigns to 
increase climate ambition, secure clean energy jobs, union jobs, and reverse income inequality all in one fell swoop. So today I was in touch. I was already on calls with labor leaders in Wisconsin and California and Maine and Texas and Illinois. Um, and it's really beautiful and exciting because I get to work with all these very smart people who are trying um, to keep our civilization from careening off a cliff, um, but also just the texture of a day flitting from one Zoom call to the next is like not my favorite, uh, you know, most embodied way of living, but it comes with the territory of organizing during the COVID crisis. Um, so yeah, and then meanwhile, you know, the most consequential piece of climate legislation in US history, which is not saying much because the bar is very low, but um, it's currently on a knife's edge in Congress. And so there's sort of an ambient anxiety about that, that the Build Back Better Act and will it get through or will the corporate backed so-called moderates uh, do their patrons bidding and kill it um, to prevent there being too much spending in, on the common good, God forbid. So, you know, all of those things being the case, uh, th that's my climate movement mood. Um, but also, it's a beautiful day here in Washington, D.C., you know, a gentle autumn day, and uh, this is my favorite season. So I look forward to, after two more Zoom calls, going out and taking a walk. Thank you for sharing that. Um, there's so many questions uh, I have for you um, as in anticipation of this conversation because I heard of your book that was recently uh, released, I believe in August, if I'm not mistaken. It's called Warmth for anyone who's gonna be listening uh, to this or watching this for posterity. Um, um, and it's a I'm in the middle of the book, so I, I I felt like I think when I initially reached out, um, I had intended to complete the book and then speak to you. And I'm actually feeling that it's a bit more poetic to be speaking to you as I'm listening to you narrate your book, um, because I, as a parent to a six-year-old and general um, multi, you know, multifaceted individ individual like we all are these days. It's like there really isn't time to actually sit down to read, but the ability to kind of, you know, I don't know, in a strange way, form a relationship with someone in that particular, um, through that particular medium of you know listening to to a story, listening to a narration, and I am really struck by just how introspective the book is. Um, and <clears throat> so, and it's also you know I had did I wasn't uh, aware that we would be speaking sort of on the heels of COP26. Um, I'm really curious to know, um, you know, from your perspective, given your breadth of, uh, of experience and awareness, how are you 
is it finished? Has it finished? You know, I, I'm sorry for not knowing um, or being so um, in tune with with uh, the current status of, of the meetings. But um, what are your feelings on COP26 at this at this moment? Yeah. Well, um, it still hasn't finished. Um, the official ending time was end of day on Friday, but like previous cops before it, it's probably going to bleed on for another day or two as they try to mm -hmm. hammer out this, this agreement. Um, you know, I think the cop was um, relative to what was expected of it. Okay. There was some progress on controlling global methane emissions. There was some progress on controlling global deforestation. The US and China, once again, in a sort of vague way, but potentially with stronger language this time, said, you know, put out a statement essentially to be effective, you know, as the two, as the world's two foremost geopolitical powers. We know we have lots of differences, but we're going to work together to make sure climate change stays under control. You know, the Chinese. And the Chinese for the first time made commitments around regulating methane emissions, which is important, but they still haven't said when their emissions writ large are gonna peak or when they're gonna, their phase out timeline for their coal industry, which is still extremely active. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, the language of this final draft agreement, which exhorts all countries to give, uh, put forward a more net, ambitious nationally determined contribution, which are the sort of technical term for the plans that each country submits to reduce their respective emissions. The language around that has been really weakened by the fact that the largest delegation by far at COP26 is the delegation from the fossil fuel industry. Um, they have about 500 registered delegates at the conference, which is more than any single country. Um, and um, yeah, it's to me uh, an indicator of the sort of levels of political cowardice that still exist in, on a lot of fronts um, and from a lot of national governments that are that have sort of been politically captured by the fossil fuel industry or feel themselves um, so dependent on their whims that they can't anger them too much. They can't keep them out of the room. Uh, but what that means is, you know, you get the cops are, you know, and I've never been to a cop. I, I really have mostly engaged um, with American climate politics, trying to move the needle here, because that's where I see I can, that's where I deem that I could have the biggest impact. Um, but from afar, they always seem like this very strange dance, which on the one hand is like a pep rally, and there are all these like incredibly inspiring young people and lots of um, sort of high emotion, high octane speeches from world leaders about the, the need for action, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a sort of pageantry around that. And it's almost a kind of like a ritual, a ritualized expression of urgency. And then the product of that ritual comes up against the brick wall of the people who you never hear from publicly at the cops, but are like, the delegates from Russia and Saudi Arabia and their allies in the fossil fuel lobby who are like quietly trying to make sure that that first and foremost, the profit, their profit margins are protected. So, I mean, it's an amazing, it's amazing kind of like apparatus and undertaking the cops. 
because it's like this, you know. Uh, and sort of a kind of incredible that can even happen. I'm not sure, you know, for all of the world's major countries to be in these same rooms together, like this couldn't have happened. Like we forget this, but it is sort of like unique. I feel in like the geopolitics of world history, like it couldn't have happened during World War II or World War One. You know, there were like major, major world powers were in active war with each other. Um, and forget about the 19th century where, you know, most of the global South was, was uh, were basically prison states to the British empire and, and other Western empires. So um, in that way, like I try to, what optimism I take from it and what hope I take from it is like, it's crazy that these things even happen and that delegates from every single country in the world are actually talking with like greater or lesser degrees of good faith about solving this problem collectively. But it is, yeah, it is an incredible exercise in trying to export people and people with a lot of vested interests and, um, and a lot of political power to rise above those narrow interests for the common good. And that's like really, really hard um, and it requires a level of vision and ethical discipline on the part of political leaders that um, some are just lacking in. You know, these are, these are people who got to the places where they are not by thinking big and practicing empathy, but by uh, throwing around a lot of sharp up, not elbows and, um, you know, being very diligent stewards of their own personal interests. So all of which is to say the COP wasn't a disaster as some people expected. It also wasn't a breakthrough success. It was, you know, a muddle of everything. And um, I think next year the fossil fuel lobby should be kept out of the room. You know, they have hundreds of youth activists outside the halls whose actual futures are on the, are on the line. Um, but they're not accredited. They're not given passes to get into the halls of negotiation. Uh, and then you're giving passes to 500 fossil fuel lobbyists, like that dynamic should be reversed. So if I were to run a campaign around the next cop, it would be polarizing around the fact that anybody directly representing a fossil fuel corporation should not be allowed to have a voice in these talks, just period. Um, because it is, it's, you know, as one of the youth activists said out, out who wasn't allowed into the hall like would you allow arms dealers to set the terms of a, a peace accord like of course of course not that the the conflict of interest is so manifestly clear uh so and so like laughably banal that it's kind of like hard to even credit that these people have so much clout and yet they do so i think that's my major nesting for the next cop is like you have to keep Exxon at arm's length or, or else no real progress can be made. Yeah, it's, it's by, by your, by your description of it, given your, you know, given your breadth of knowledge, it just, it sounds like a, a kind of a muddled episode of Looney Tunes or something to have that many, um, <laughs> many fossil fuel delegates uh in in one place uh, you know um sort of shoulder to shoulder with uh with delegates from so many countries yeah it's uh it's it's it is yeah i i, I agree with you in that it's amazing that <clears throat> given the amount of progress in the last let's say 100 years that these kinds of meetings or gatherings are even possible like the olympics um you know just 
just that that kind of uh, you know cross border logistics. But even but there's there is this feeling, and again, just from this in really intense observation and really far away periphery, you you see these individuals, these groups, and these individuals gathering together to discuss a topic, and how much time is actually spent, you know, getting getting work done or making strides. You know, it's like when you think about. Um, and this may be a poor metaphor, but a metaphor of like, you know, when we used to go into an office, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, for eight hours, you clock in, but like how much time, like what, there was some studies done that like maybe, maybe two to four hours of that eight hour time span is actually spent doing meaningful work. And the rest of that time is like, you know, lunches and uh, um, water cooler conversation. And not that that isn't, uh, not that that's not valuable. But it's like, how much can get done in these uh, in these these kinds of conferences? Um, is something that always um, kind of piques my interest in an interesting way. Yeah, I, I don't know. Sorry, my cats are making a noise back there. Um, That's okay. I uh, yeah, again, I've never been to one, so I can't attest directly. But my impression is there's a lot of work that happens. Hmm sort of bilaterally beforehand where people's countries take out their positions. But then like actually people are sort of like drafting new language in like yeah. rooms off of the plenary that like actually does have consequence. So I do I do think that like work is happening at the cops and it's not just pageantry, but um but you know the line is thin because you know every world leader who goes there wants a headline saying they're taking they're tackling climate change head on and they and they want that headline without having to not every world leader there are many world leaders who are who whose hearts are actually in the issue but you know for those like like vladimir putin or xi jinping or um you know the the leaders of the saudi oil states i think they're still in this place where um they're there for a good headline and then to like hedge as much as possible on what they're, they, they'll be required to do. Um, and it's an interesting bet they're making, you know, that uh, their power, which is the thing they're always trying to consolidate, will last in a world where ecological feedback loops are sort of eroding the foundations of society. Like it does seem sort of they're sometimes choosing this path where like, you know, I'm okay if the ship goes down as long as I have my hand on the tiller as it's as it's sinking, you know? And it, it, to me, it's, it's completely insane. So I don't know. I mean, I think it really does come down to like most of these world leaders are not gonna lead the way. They have to be, they have to be pushed relentlessly by their citizenry, especially in the democracies to feel like their political lives rest on protecting the lives of their constituents, because that's the trade-off here. Um, for Xi Jinping in China, it's, it's much more confusing to me about how, how you move them to act in a way that uh, is aligned with keeping warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. But I also don't think I don't know. 
they're not, uh, I think the Chinese Communist Party is like, it has many very scary tendencies, but they're not anti-empiricist. Like they're not batshit insane, like, like one of our two political parties are in the sense of just like really, um, they haven't swallowed a catechism that tells them they need to ignore climate science, which thank God, because, you know, I do think at this point, in their attempts to scuttle all action on climate change, the Republican Party is maybe the most dangerous organization on the planet. I definitely feel fucking cartoon villainish at this point. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's like, it's like hedging your entire political stature on, on just all out culture wars, quite a position. And I mean, we can, that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, that we can have and um yeah because I, I am starting to worry about you know the next midterm and as we all should be as well as the next general um but i there's something there's a there's there are there's a there's a spectrum of feelings that i'm having uh, as i'm in the midst of your book right now um and your book you know it's important to note that your, your book is both an account of your experiences as a climate organizer, but also is like a, a letter that you're writing to your unborn child. Mm -hmm. And as a, as a father to a six-year-old, uh, to a six-year-old daughter, um, there's a whole... <laughs> There's a whole, uh, there's a, there's, there are way, there's like a lot of nuance feelings that I have in listening to this that, um, that I would like to, to touch on for posterity. Um, one thing that I, you know, I'm really struck by a, a really great use of, of, of metaphor. And so, you know, throughout your, throughout your book, you are, you are talking about the problem and for people who, uh, you know, may not be aware. It's like the, the problem, right? The problem of, you know, existential climate or like impending climate catastrophe or accelerated climate change. You know, there's, there's many ways to, to describe what the problem is. And it's something that we, in our generation, we, we've lived with, right? We lived in and around forever. It's something, it's something that we've kind of always been aware of. Um, and we are also, um, I had a previous conversation uh, with a guest on this program where we were talking about, we kind of coined um, that our generation who kind of was born around 1984, who came of age around 9-11, um, who, uh, you know, survived the Great Recession and made it past past the, the opaque line of, of 2012 where we are generation apocalypse and it's not it's not to throw that around just to to be playful or, or be kind of kitschy with it but but uh this sort of like elder millennial generation that we we kind of co-inhabit is we have this we have this macro view um on 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 the problem and uh, you bring up in your book, the um, Lars von Trier's film, Melancholia, 
as this, you know, as this like kind of simple metaphor of how people are either avoidant of the problem or how they're aware of it. If it's something that is like a planet that's, that's coming into, you know, into, uh, into contact with our, with our planet. Um, I don't quite know what my question is at this moment, but there's just this, this, the, the feeling of, um, like how, how have you, as a climate organizer, how have you been resourcing yourself uh, with the means to keep going? I mean, that's a very kind of big, vague, generalized question, but yeah. it's kind of the starting point that I want to launch off of. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think writing this book, the act of writing this book um, and orchestrating for myself a genuine emotional encounter with the enormity of the climate crisis and, and taking it out of whatever sort of little Pandora's, Pandora's box I'd shoved it away into for fear of looking at it in the face. Um, that has been enormously meaningful to me in my climate organizing work um, to try to eliminate the sense that I was like sleepwalking toward a catastrophe and instead um, really engage with the nature and the weight and the possibilities surrounding that threat of catastrophe. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is not a prescriptive thing. I don't think what has worked for me is gonna work for anybody else, but writing is how I process the world and literature is how I process the world. And I felt before I wrote, wrote this book, warmth, like a very, a distinct lack of literary writing that grappled with the weight of the climate crisis. There was a lot of like science fiction writing about climate change, which I think has its own merits, but it sort of displaces it into an alternate future dystopia. It's sort of like, um, it kind of like, boils it down to a convenient plot point rather than engages with it as a, uh, an ongoing thing that is, that is shaping and changing everything about how humans live on their planet and will continue to do that for the next several centuries. So yeah, writing has been enormously useful for me. And then, um, you know, I think there's, it's easy uh, with the climate crisis to get lost in the doom scroll, you know? Mm -hmm. There's such an endless torrent of bad news and poor forecasts and political cowardice and uh, corporate cynicism. And it's this tricky, tricky balancing act for me of not um, washing my hands of that world because I do think the world of politics is is the world in which decisions are made about who lives and who dies um so you can't wash your hands of it um especially if you're someone with relative privilege but on the other hand just like not <laughs> maintaining a sort of critical distance um and not letting myself be consumed and either become a, a sort of political animal where all the stakes are abstracted and you just sort of want your side to win or becoming um you know 
so caught up in the bad news that I forget that I also have an ongoing life that proceeds moment by moment in the present and that I should also attend to sometimes because otherwise what's the point of having been born at all <laughs> so um yeah I take a lot of walks and try to place strict limits for myself around how I engage with like the content hose that is the internet um and you know but again without attending to the broad strokes and staying savvy about the political about the political wins but um trying to resist getting trapped in that feedback loop of like small dopamine hit, hits or like small doses of dread that get meted out uh, in little informational chunks online i just like feel that to be a pretty unhealthy space for me um and i'm not always successful you know the internet is an incredible incredibly compelling uh flame that all us moths are dancing around <laughs> constantly but um yeah i think you have to attend deeply to the problem which sometimes means attending to it beyond just the constant uh litany of gloomy headlines um yeah i don't know if that made sense absolutely absolutely and you know whether whether folks can you know subjectively relate to it or not i mean there's i mean i think we could all agree that uh as you as you said the content hose or the fire hose of just the deluge of everyday content mixed in with misinformation and disinformation and doom and gloom um is is very heavy no matter what kind of diet you you ascribe to you know totally so it's it, yeah yeah oh, i was just gonna say i you know there are pitfalls in going too far in either direction because on the one mm. hand i interact with a lot of people in the world of movement politics that um have been so shaped by like the time bound and incessant pressures that are involved in making change in that world that there's a sort of emotional tap that gets shut off by yeah. necessity and people aren't uh taking the time to process that deeply and th and that can lead to like all sorts of like perverse incentive structures and decision making pathways in that world so i think that's bad on the other hand you know i'm less in these worlds but i think they're you know i've been adjacent to them where there's a sort of checking out and like a preference for only living in the present um you know so folks whose response to the climate crisis is like more meditation you go live in a commune you you like build your perfect utopia with with you and your friends and you build a utopia in your mind um but you don't engage in the systems by which utopia might be salvaged systemically in the real world um so i think yeah you require discipline on both fronts one to like the discipline of make like uh remaining politically effective uh and clear-eyed about how you're using your power to intervene in larger systems but also be equally disciplined about like continuing to like leave room for emoting and cogitating and like um engaging with the world as like a, a gorgeous set of sensations and uh, not just like a 
a sort of chessboard of raw power, which can be a very, I think, thinning way of experiencing the world. Agreed. I'm I'm curious to know um, if you'd be if you'd be open to going into, you know, rather a personal, a personal subject of of given the you know given that you wrote the book and and definitely a lot of the book is again woven in uh, these these letters to to uh, your unborn child. Have, has your it seems silly to say position or opinion on parenthood or becoming a father yourself. Has that moved in any way upon the release of the book or in the process of writing the book? Like, where are you on that? Um, where are you in that right now out of curiosity? Yeah. So a lot of people ask me that sort of like, where are you landing on the kids question? You know. Um, and my first answer is to say that I haven't landed on a yes or a no yet, yeah. largely because this is an ongoing discussion between my partner and I. Um, yeah. And so it's not a unilateral decision. Um, but also because I didn't really write the book to answer that question. I wrote the book more like addressing a hypothetical unborn child as a way to like peek under the emotional and the intellectual hood of like what was happening inside of myself with sure. regard to trying to process the climate what's happening to our planet. Um, but all of that said, I think, honestly, if I'm being, you know, I think my most honest answer is that I'm probably closer than I was before I started writing the book to feeling okay and excited about having a child. Um, mostly because this book was sort of a test for myself. Mm. Could I create a document that I felt would honestly place me and this new person into a conversation about the difficult world that they'd been brought into without their consent and could I or could I set the table for that conversation without you know um without drinking the seductive potion of blind optimism or just collapsing entirely into despair. But could I hold myself and I hold this person in the space in between those two poles, which is really just um, indeterminacy um, from which is born hope, I think. And hope is very different than optimism. So I felt ending, you know, when I finished writing this book, like I, yeah, this is, I've done work that makes me feel more ready to like have that conversation with my potential child and that's to be a father writ large um mm. and you know to the extent that having children is like a vote in favor of the continuation of the human project like despite all of our massive failings i do still believe in the human project as as a potential source of great beauty and meaning. So, um, but all of that is not prescriptive. I think it's a deeply personal choice. Like I, I don't I don't have a take on whether people should have children. I mean, to be honest, if I were, you know, from just like a strictly, if I were an, if I were a professional ethicist, I would say, I think I would pretty easily come to the conclusion that um, if you want to have a family in 2021, you should adopt, you should try to adopt children. And like that's the most defensible position. And I think that's probably true. Um, but 
you know, um, I don't think it's not for me to tell anyone to that yes, we should be having children now or no, we shouldn't. But I do think if I have any exhortation, it's just like as you're considering that question, if you're considering that question without thinking about the trajectory of the climate crisis and what it means for your family, you're you're just not seeing the full picture. Um, and you're not in some way standing in solidarity with that next generation because this is just going to be a massive determinant of what their life looks like. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, even now with our daughter at the age of six, uh, there is a growing awareness, um, especially against the against the loudspeaker of, of as you say, blind optimism. Um, that there will there will soon be a chapter of our lives as a family, um, probably as well as other large swaths of, of society as we know it, where we, we will be existing as some as climate migrants, like like many like many of us have already started doing that, you know, in uh, you know in 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 Western countries, you know, where people have decided to. Uh, get up and move shop and yeah, well, work remote. Are you thinking about that seriously from LA, from your position in LA that LA We've, might not be a place that you want to live a decade from now? Uh, yeah, I mean, just just to, um, yeah, I appreciate you asking it. I mean, just from a, from a subject, yeah, just from a personal subjective position along with my partner, I mean, we, uh, <clears throat> we took our first uh, cross-country road trip uh, this summer to just look around to see what's out there and who's out there to be in to to get in touch with uh, um with friends and loved ones who you know live outside of big cities and um you know obviously it wasn't the most e um, ecologically sound um road trip to take um yeah, I mean we were in, but we were in a you know we were in a 28 foot boat on wheels and that's kind of what you do you know if we're going to do yeah. it once yeah. let's let's do it um and uh and i yeah i saw a lot i saw a lot and that conversation is always moving and it's progressing at its own its own rate um but you know there's you know at least in this quadrant of of uh the country here i mean there's a lot of people who i think are you know kind of ostriches with their heads in the sand uh about the you know you know the incoming if not even incoming sort of the water the water issue that we have water issues that we have here in the southwest um and then there's you know my own kind of uh Long-range view on uh, you know LA's LA's stated uh, slated to be hosting the Olympics in 2028 and really yeah and I I do not I do not want to be here when that happens because there's there's already been uh, you know there's like we've already now from a citywide uh, uh, level like have criminalized homelessness and there have been. Yeah. It feels like episodes of Star Wars that have happened here with, uh, you know, displacement, like a large displacement of, of houseless communities, even one right here in our neighborhood in Echo Park. And um, it's, uh, you know, 
it's getting a bit grimmer in that regard. Um, meanwhile, you know, again, like here in in the Southwest, like in the middle of November, it's like like any other sort of autumn in in Los Angeles, we are to, we are just seesawing between you know sixty eight Fahrenheit and ninety three Fahrenheit, and there is nothing in between that. And so right now we're in this you know Santa Ana wind condition heat wave, and um, just kind of holding our breaths that the re remainder of fire season uh, doesn't get any more existentially uh, terrifying. So it's, there's a lot in there, um, <laughs> but in the, yeah, that's, that's a long, uh, long answer of, of very much so considering uh, moving to another location that, will be you know more in line with our values as a family but more importantly just uh within the community that we're going to be engaged in because it's hard you know given the given the scope of the pandemic uh you know it's definitely made a perversion of the nuclear family unit um yeah for better or for worse right i mean there's there's aspects of resilience to touch on but but uh it's definitely felt like you know we are a, we are an ocean of islands um to, you know due to the pandemic and so that's just not something that we can imagine can continuing for the next you know 10 20 25 years hmm. so it's all it's all yeah it's all in question wow yeah i mean it's even now it's sort of uh you know it's confronting to hear about uh families thinking about, you know, making their location or relocation decisions based on climate factors. But of course that's happening and that's happening for my partner and I as well. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I don't want to treat all of that as a fait accompli, like Los Angeles, you know, there are people who will claim to have a crystal ball and say Los Angeles will be uninhabitable by 2080 or like, New York City will be underwater by 2100. I think it's really hard to predict those things, but, um, and I think there's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy dynamic also where like, uh, if something is given up on, then it's genuinely given up on. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, yeah, that it's like weird that there's just like incredibly heavy and present variable that we have to think about when we think about ordering our lives that our parents' generation just didn't have to take into account at all. Um, and I think maybe still has a hard time conceptualizing, like, whoa, you're like not gonna, you're not gonna live, uh, you know, on the Jersey Shore because of climate change. I grew up near the Jersey Shore, so mm. doesn't that it's so far off though? And it's like, you know. <laughs> Not really. Like I have to think in terms of the this the the length of my lifetime, and my lifetime is going to contain a lot, you know, because you know geologic history is moving faster than biography at this point. I mean, things are changing at a rate that you know was would have been unimaginable unimaginable from a planetary perspective for the last tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So it's not day after tomorrow, right? But it's not. Uh, <laughs> it's still naked to the human eye, uh, or it's. Uh, yeah, or it's visible to the naked human eye. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, it still feels like a, a bit 
surreal and dislocating. Yeah, it still it still feels kind of fairy fairy tale like, especially as you mentioned, for you know, just just one generation removed, right? Just in our in our parents' generation, it's like they don't they don't connect the the nodes between like every five years, every three to five years is a hundred year storm. Um, mm. And and that rate that that length of time between hundred year storms is like shortening and shortening. Um, and last year's fire season on the West Coast, which was, which was, uh, you know, a very much blockbuster movie. Um, it felt like a blockbuster movie and, and it got so real that, that that very much accelerated that, really expanded that conversation about a long-term uh, plan. And I mean, all that to say that um, I even have, uh, I have a, a dear friend who's um, getting his PhD in in uh, geography and agricultural systems, and uh, I think he's finishing his Fulbright, and his focus is on Iceland. And mm -hmm. one of one of the things that he told me in the last uh, several years that he's been based in Iceland is that when you look at uh, sort of that uh, what is it longitude or just that at that at that um, yeah that. Yeah, I know what you're at that at, probably a latitude line. At that, thank you. At that latitude line, uh, you know, or at least like from the from the perspective of like the northeast of, of mm -hmm. the states and so like up there, you know, that there's there's there is there there are ways in which, you know, uh I wouldn't say that he would say it this way, but like he's studying like the benefits of of climate change on the agricultural systems of of Iceland, given that their you know their frost season is shortening and their growing season is expanding, and so like he started the first CSA on the island and that kind of thing, and so um, you know so he's he's pointing at like that latitude, like you know if you want to look thirty years down the line, let's let's look somewhere around there. So and it's not necessarily like his prediction, but it's just like something that he's focusing on so these are the kinds of conversations and 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 sort of the levels of awareness that i'm at now and that's that's kind of always kind of expanding and whatnot um so what's what's next what's next for you if you'd like to touch on that just for the last minute or two of this conversation yeah um well i think for the next several years i mean my life is going to be dedicated to working in and around the climate movement. Um, so right now I'm running policy campaigns all around the country um, to try to decarbonize the school, the public school sector. Um, and I think that'll continue for a while. If Build Back Better passes, it's going to be a, you know, the largest ever investment uh, into the clean energy economy. And there'll be a lot of work to make sure, you know, those dollars are actually being spent on real solutions as opposed to like bullshit fossil fuel industry propaganda, uh, propaganda machines like carbon capture and storage and other stuff they want to do to, to avoid doing what's necessary. Um, but, um, and then I also think, you know, my partner is actually an Australian citizen and will probably spend a few years out in Australia uh, at some point in the next decade. And they're, um, they're probably the laggards the whole of all Western democracies. They're they're um, the worst on climate policy, and they're 
Liberal Party, which is their right-wing party, has been completely captured by the coal industry and is uh, currently in power, refusing to do almost anything about the climate crisis. So if we move out there, there's going to be a lot of work to shift that dynamic. Um, and so I'm looking at that. And then I'm also looking to continue to write. I mean, we're living through, we're going to live through an incredibly strange and heavy and disorienting and violent, but maybe also beautiful century. <laughs> um, and I want to stay alive to what it's like to live through all that, that unraveling or that, uh, or that re-knitting if we do our work right. Um, and the way I stay alive to those things is through writing. So um, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I imagine if I ever do start a family, another book will force its way up through my throat. <laughs> yeah well i <laughs> well as you know as as a parent to a young child um and who definitely in in discussing impending parenthood for myself and my partner there was definitely this feeling of like i don't know if i want to bring someone in into you know a, a fucked up world is one way of saying that just just to be uh you know um just to be kind of melodramatic about it and then something shifted between me and my partner uh where suddenly the the narrative went to well actually if we could if we, if we again maybe from a place of blind optimism but if we could bring someone if we could bring in people to help unfuck the world then that mm -hmm. that's a maybe that's something worth living for and so that's where we're at. Um, it's it's been I I again thank you for releasing this book. Um, I hope everyone reads and listens to it, and I look forward to um, <clears throat> to future books and future writings uh, that'll come from you. And I look and hopefully we can follow up on this conversation in the near future. And it's been an honor to have you on the program. Thanks so much, Adam. It's been a great conversation. I'll talk Thanks, to you. Daniel. Take care.